Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. A few weeks ago, I was at Starbucks over here on Day Board. Uh, since our offices are downtown, I like to get over here uh, to the west side of Conway as much as possible, especially when UCA and uh, the schools are in session. I like, the, I like the environment, the atmosphere. I like just uh, to be over here. And as is my habit, every week I set up at uh, Starbucks there and work on my sermon. And I went in there like a normal, normal experience. I set up all of my stuff. I ordered my drink. I got my laptop out my iPad, my Bible, ready to go in my seat, my regular seat. They know my name. They know my order. They know where I sit. Went to the restroom and uh, coming out of the restroom, right as soon as I cleared that little hallway there where the two restrooms are, right as soon as I did that, I stepped out and right into a barista that was carrying two large, completely full drinks. And in an instant, those two drinks exploded all over both of us and the floor. I'm standing there dripping wet. She is wet. The floor is wet. And we do the normal things that we do. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Are you okay? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Here, let me clean this up. Get napkins. I had like one napkin. And I was like, you know, I don't have access to the mop. But the, the, the most surprising thing about it is in just a moment, my normal day, my normal routine, everything that I was supposed to be doing was was interrupted in this explosion in which I needed to make a decision. And it's not a big decision. It's not a hard decision. It's just that for a few seconds, I was surprised at being confronted with, well, what do I do now? Well, what, what do I do in this moment? I could either just go sit down and write my sermon, dripping wet, sticky, smell like coffee, or, which isn't bad, or I could, uh, you know, get my things, go back to the house, waste the morning, shower, change, and then make my way. So that's what I did. I ended up just getting all my stuff, shower, change, go back to Starbucks and write my sermon. You may be surprised, but every person, every individual, every person who is hearing me now is going to at some point be confronted with a situation, with a circumstance in which you have to, every one of you, individually answer the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? Exactly how are you going to respond to Jesus? Look, it's perfectly fine for you to sit there for a few seconds and go, what do I do with this? But at some point, you have to make a decision. There's a guy who lived and died, his name's C.S. Lewis. And in 1952, he made popular what we call the trilemma, the trilemma. He made it famous. He wrote in a book called Mere Christianity, the following quote. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one of the things that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil from hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. The trilemma is that decision in which all people have to decide whether or not Jesus was a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. I'm actually going to steal C.S. Lewis's trilemma here. It's not actually his, but what he made famous. I'm going to steal those three choices, apply them to our text, and overlay them in our text in a way that we can understand it, that we can read and understand the story. And then hopefully everyone, whether it's your first time or a millionth time, we would all walk out of here today recognizing the reality that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at Mark chapter 3. God, thank you for what you have already done in our lives this week and this morning. We are so encouraged by the reality of coming together as a family united around a mission. God, I do pray and thank you for the weather, for the, the community, for the fellowship, for the young lady who followed you in believer's baptism during the previous service. May you equally work in our hearts as individuals and as a collective. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. Let's look at lunatic first. Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says, And Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. And when his family heard this, that's his mama, his brothers, and his sisters, they set out to restrain him because they said, He is out of his mind. The story begins, this story about Jesus, like a lot of stories in the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus enters a house, probably Peter's house in Capernaum, the same house that a few stories earlier, they tore open the roof and lowered the man so Jesus could heal that person. Jesus enters this house and there is a huge crowd, a bunch of people that want to hear and see and be near Jesus. That part's normal for the Gospel of Mark, but Mark slips in this other little Side note, this part that you do not need in the story. And anytime a New Testament writer puts something in the story in which you do not need it, you need to pay attention to that. He says, and then Jesus' family wants to get him, wants to arrest him. That's the same uh, English translation of the word to restrain him. They want to arrest him. Now, I'm the oldest of five, and I have three sons. So I could tell you something about siblings not getting along. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? There are moments in which you just do not get along with your brothers or your sisters if you are so blessed to have any. The thing, the strange thing about brothers and sisters is that you know everything about that person. Everything. All the gross things, all the embarrassing things, some of the victories, though we would never admit it, and some of the strengths and uh, smart things that they've done, although we easily forget those. But we know everything about that person, and yet there is this unwritten code, this unspoken alliance that says, I know all your junk, and when we're out in public, I got your back, all right? Normally, I got your back, all right? If you're getting picked on, I might let that slide. If you're in mortal dan danger, I'm there for you. You murder somebody, I'll claim I did it if you have a valid reason, all right? That's the code of brothers and sisters, all right? In a normal, healthy, um, non-homicidal relationship, that is the code. And yet there was something here, something that caused Jesus' sisters and his brothers to break the code. It says that they heard something. What they heard was that Jesus was popular, 
what people were talking about him, what, what he was doing. He was, he was, he was rescuing people. He was, he was saving people, healing people, casting out demons. And this caused them to want to go and get control of the situation. It's very likely that his mom and his brothers and his sisters just feared for his safety. They thought something's not right. They had grown up with him. They knew he was a little different, probably mama's favorite, but something in this moment is not right. And so maybe they feared for his safety or, and it is likely that they just feared that he was breaking the social norms. He was not acting right. He was acting out of, um, out of his mind. He was acting a little crazy. And this was causing a peer situation in their lives. It was causing something not to go well. It reminds me of the story in which Jesus heals the blind man and the Pharisees are trying their best to credit that miracle to anything other than Jesus being sent by God. They're trying their best to find up some other solution. So at one point they bring in the formerly blind man's parents and ask him, how did your son get healed? And they are Fearful. They don't want to admit that it's Jesus. They let Jesus and their son um, do their own thing. They're not going to put their lot in with Jesus. Why? Because they were afraid of being ostracized. They were afraid of upsetting the apple cart or going against the social norms or pushing back on what was popular in their time frame. They wanted to just go with the flow. And listen, this isn't something that has gone away. These people are claiming, his family is claiming that as C.S. Lewis put it, Jesus is a lunatic, a madman. But of course he's not. In verse 11, when Jesus heals uh, the the demon-possessed person, the demon comes out of the person and declares, you are the son of God. Jesus is not crazy, he's completely sane. And yet the accusation is that because Jesus is following the will of God, because he's doing what God told him to do, then he's crazy you're gonna face the same thing if you follow Jesus. If you're legitimately, consistently, authentically following the teachings of Jesus to the best of your ability, they're gonna think you're crazy. Why would you offer forgiveness to people who have blatantly harmed you? Why would you do that? That's, that's crazy. Why would you set aside one day when you could be at the lake, when you could be working in your yard, when you could be getting ready for NFL? Why would you set aside a Thursday night when you got exams to study for, when you got things to do, dates to go on? Why would you do that to worship Jesus? That's, that's crazy. Why would you insist that your family and your personal integrity be built around God and his principles, that your finances prioritize the work of Christ through your local church, that you would not associate with those who do not want to do good, that you would skip the parties, that you would respect leadership and authority, that you would vote for people that have character and integrity and throw away your vote? Why would you do that? That's crazy. When you follow Jesus and his principles, when you go against the social norms, when you go against what is popular, what everybody else is doing based on Christian principles, it's crazy. But it's not just that they level such a hurtful accusation against Jesus that he is crazy, that it comes from his own family. They decide, others decide that are standing by, they decide that he's lying. This is something, lying. Uh, not only a lunatic, but a liar. This is something my mom really drilled into our heads. She used to say, I, I could still see her and hear her say, I hate 
lying. She said that normally when she caught one of us lying, right? She just drilled it in our heads. And what she did was she produced uh, five children that grew up to be adults that, that even if it gets us in trouble, we just say the truth. We can't help it. There are times when maybe we should say it a little bit differently or, or soften it a little bit, but we can't help it. We're afraid of mom, all right? And so we don't mean to hurt anybody. We're just saying what is true because we're afraid of our mamas. Look at verse uh, 22. And then the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus is preaching a message in which he is sent by God to do the will of God and they say he's satanic. In John 8, 44, the Bible calls Satan the father of lies. What's interesting here is that the scribes are not refuting that Jesus is performing the miracles. That is, that is undeniable. Jesus is performing miracles, but what they're trying to do is saying, hey, it wasn't God that helped him, it was, it was Satan. He's lying. He's an evil devil liar. That's what they're trying to accuse Jesus of. And again, like the lunatic mud throwing thing, when you follow Jesus, you might be accused of doing what is evil. I've actually heard this a bunch in our modern culture, in a modern society, in the news, things like that. If you have the audacity, the absolute lunatic belief that abortion is the murder of the unborn and you stand against that, there will be people who say that you are evil for not providing health care for women. It's ridiculous. That's what they'll say. If you are so committed to these outdated principles in which you would stand and believe that there are two distinct God-given biological genders, then they're going to say you're evil for not letting people pretend to be what they want to do be. If you stand with scripture and say that human sexuality is only rightly expressed in one man and one woman for one lifetime in a covenant marriage, then they're going to say you're evil. You're you're the bad one because you're not letting people do whatever it is that they want to do. Well, they can do whatever it is that they want to do. I'm just still going to stand and say that this is what's right and that is what is wrong. They're going to say that you're a liar. They're going to say that you are evil. They've been saying it since the beginning. They said that he was evil. They said that he was crazy. And Jesus responds to this in 23 through 27. So he summoned them and he spoke to them in parables. Now, a little pause here. This text with Jesus, it's interesting because I'm gonna ask you to respond to Jesus. But the, the way that you see Jesus in this text is not the way that we often uh, feel about Jesus, that he's so soft and cuddly and like peace and love and, and a hippie and all that kind of stuff. This Jesus is fierce. He's not afraid. He's strong. It says that he summoned, meaning Jesus was in that crap, that crowded. Um, what word am I trying to say? Um, not that one. Cram-packed. That's what I was trying to say. The cram-packed, crowded house. Couldn't even eat. There's all these people standing around, and then there's people in the back running their mouth. And Jesus knows it, and he says, you, come here. You want to say that again? to my face, 
That's what Jesus just did. And then he starts talking to them in parables. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first try, uh, ties up the strong man and then he can plunder his house. Here's what Jesus says. Wait a second, you just said that I'm from Satan? It's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. Kingdom divided can't stand, a house divided can't stand. You think that I'm here on behalf of Satan to attack Satan? That's ridiculous. But then he says, but make no mistake about it, Satan's strong, but I'm stronger. You think I'm here to attack Satan by the power of Satan? I'm not, but I am here to attack Satan. And I'm gonna tie him up in his own house and I'm gonna take back what's mine. That's what Jesus just said to these people. The point that Jesus is making is that Satan doesn't attack Satan. It doesn't work that way. Y'all ever seen those house divided um, bumper stickers or license plates, maybe a flag in somebody's nice little rose garden? A house divided, they'll have their favorite football team and then a line or basketball team. Their favorite one, there'll be a line and say house divided and then they'll be their rivals football team. I actually thought about this, this not yesterday, but uh, a week ago. We were watching our favorite football team at our house and, and my family's sitting there in the colors and, and Jackie was sitting over there on the couch. She was cheering. I looked over at her and I thought about this house divided concept and I wondered to myself, would I have married her if she cheered for another team? That's what I wondered to myself. And I thought about it for a second and I decided uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> if she had just been like a passive fan of some other team, Eh, whatever, okay. But if she was like a diehard paint your face um, fight song ringtone for one of, one of our team's rivals, there's no way on this planet I would have married her. There's not. And I'm not even joking. It's not that I wouldn't, uh, it's not that I think she would agree. It's not that I would have finally got to the altar and been like, I can't, I can't. I wouldn't have dated her long enough to find out. It just wouldn't have worked. It just wouldn't have worked. As passionate as I am about this thing, and as much as she lets me, it just wouldn't have worked. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, two diametrically opposed forces don't stand. You have to be united in order to stand. And then he says, and even Satan knows that. that do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying divided things don't work and Satan knows that. Another way that, of what Jesus is saying here is Satan and the demons are united. They're not against one another. They are united more so than some of our Baptist churches, than some families, than some groups of Christians, some networks of churches. They're not fighting against each other. They know what their mission is and they are united and ready to do it. Everybody else fighting against themselves. And Jesus says, that's no good. That's not how that's going to work. So you can't have that. Jesus says it's foolishness, Satan. So they said that he's a lunatic. They said that he's a liar. I won't spend a lot of time on verses 28 
through 30. 28 through 30 is the, is the sort of stuff that makes seminary uh, freshmen or seminary first year, Bible college seminary uh, uh, freshmen, scratch their beard, navel gaze and argue with one another. What is the unforgivable sin? The bottom line is that they're the idea or the continued ongoing practice of rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, flat rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, which in this case is the setting apart and the blessing and the empowering of Jesus Christ to continually and and completely reject that is to not be forgiven. But I have a challenge for you. Instead of trying to articulate or to specify exactly what the unforgivable sin is, let me challenge you to think of it this way. If rejecting the Holy Spirit is not forgiven, then understand this. Your sins are forgiven when you accept the work of the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus. I can't exactly articulate. I have a very solid theory and I strongly stand on what I believe that they are just rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. But I do know this, accepting the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, your sins are forgiven, which leads us to this final point. If Jesus isn't a lunatic, but completely sane, and he isn't a lying devil, then what do you do with this guy who claims to be sent by God and who claims to be God? Look at 31 through 35. And his mothers and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mom and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. That whole theme of the family pops back up. Mark intentionally took this story about his mom and his brothers and his sisters coming to get him and divided it up, divided it up in a way that put the middle of that, some sort of division in this language of unity and a kingdom that is divided. And so we pick back up this idea of his family showing up. And what Mark is also intentionally doing is showing you that there's an outside and an inside. If you read it carefully, you can see that. It says when his family got there, they were where? They were outside and they sent word in and the people around Jesus said, hey, your mom is outside. There's this outside and this in. When the scribes were questioning Jesus, they were outside and he summoned them in. And then I guess he dismissed them out when he was done, right? There is an out, there's an in, there's a with, there's against. Again, pushing you, every single one of you, to individually, intentionally answer the question, you out or are you in? You with or are you against? There is no middle ground. You are either with Christ or you are against Christ. I also want to say, and I should say, that Jesus isn't anti his mama. Sometimes people read this and they get that sort of conclusion. There's tons of other texts and biblical scriptures that say that Jesus loved his mama. Jesus loved his mama. Jesus loved his brothers. It's just clear that at this point, at this moment, they don't recognize him as the Savior. Every bit of me, 
in my mind's eye, in my imagination, see that Jesus makes this illustration. They bring up family. He uses family as an illustration. And then he's done in that crowded, cramped room. He's done. And he stands up and makes his way through the crowd and greets his mama. All right. He loves his mom. He loves his brothers. He loves his sisters. It's just that they brought up family. Hey, your family's here. And he, he keys off of that word to make an illustration. But what is the illustration? Well, it's about unity. A couple seasons ago, college football, NFL, high school, all the sports teams, regardless of football or not, they all started adopting the word family. You could get your favorite sports team on a shirt and down the sleeve it would say family. They'd break the huddle and they'd scream family. They'd touch a sign that says family when they go out to the court, when they go out to the field. The idea was that they were gonna be united around a mission. That was gonna win this game, that's gonna win state, that's gonna win the conference, that's gonna win nationals. They were gonna do what they set out to do to win this tournament. They didn't love one another. They weren't born, they weren't actually family, but they were united around one mission. That's what family means. It is a mission, a thing to unite around. See, the scribes were there because they were united around traditionalism and the law. They believed, they knew how this thing should go. They didn't care what Jesus said. They didn't care what God's messenger was there to bring them. They were united around the way that they had always done the way that they had done things. They were united around their own collective genius, that they were smarter than God and they were gonna do it the way that it has always been done. That's traditionalism. And in some ways, some very, um, some very pathetic, misguided ways, traditionalism does bring unity. If there's a loud complaining voice that can just beat everybody into doing exactly what they want to do, then in some ways that is unity, right? There's no division in that. And see, his mom and his brothers weren't there around traditionalism. They were there around social norms. And that's the one that most of us fall prey to. Honestly, that's the one that most of us fall prey to. Because if you can just think and look and cut your hair and use the right clothing and say the right words in the right way, if you can just vote the way that everybody else is doing, then in some ways that does bring unity. It's just that both of them are so vapid and both of them are so false. Those don't bring lasting unity. Everybody has a different tradition. Everybody has a different background. So whose tradition are we gonna line up with? Everybody has a different social circle. Everybody has a different peer expectation. So which social circle are we gonna line up with? Those things don't bring unity. What Jesus says is, this is my family, those who do the will of God. You see, uniting around the mission and the purpose of the person of Jesus is what brings unity because there is no shadow of turning with our Father. There is no hypocrisy. There's no changing his mind, no double standard, no two-face with God. He says what he says and he does what he does. It doesn't matter what tradition is. It doesn't matter what your friends say. You unite around God. That's why Jesus says, this, this is my family, family, true unity. This is the good news. Verse 35 is the good news. It is the invitation for you. You, each of you, 
everyone here, everyone watching online, everyone that will hear this in the podcast later, every one of you have to individually make a decision. What do you do with Jesus? What's your choice? What do you say that he is? You can call him a liar. You can call him a lunatic. But you cannot, as C.S. Lewis says, think that he's a good teacher. Like many of us do. The idea that like, I just like some of his teachings. I don't like the stuff that doesn't make me comfortable. I take what I like, what I think I understand about him. He's a good teacher. And I try to live my life based on the best way that I kind of understand what he said. No, he's not just a teacher. A good teacher would not lie to you and say that he's God. In fact, that would be a crazy person. And why would you center your life and listen to anything that a crazy person says? The only true logical response is to see Jesus as Lord. He is what he said he was. And that demands radical obedience. The kind that is very likely to lead you to being called crazy or evil. You must obey God. One of the greatest apologetics to the message of Jesus Christ is that no one has ever willingly died for what they knew to be a lie. No one has ever willingly died for what they knew to be a lie. And Jesus was surrounded by dozens of people that knew for a fact whether or not he walked on water. They knew without any shadow of a doubt whether or not he healed the blind man, whether or not he cast out the demons, whether or not he fed the 5,000, whether or not he said that he was God, whether or not he died and rose again. They knew for a fact, Peter knew, James knew, John knew, and all of them, save John and possibly Mary, all of them faced the executioner with the executioner telling them, all you gotta do is say that he's not God and you will live. And every one of them, every last one of them, look the person wielding the sword, look the person wielding the fire, look the person wielding the lions, looked them in the eye and said, he is Lord. Kill me if you want to, but Jesus is God. And they died. So now what are you going to do with that? How do you respond to it? It's cowardly to just say, yeah, he's a pretty good guy. It's illogical, it's mentally lazy, and it's spiritually irresponsible. Jesus is Lord. So I've got two pictures for you. The first one is that you, that you would answer this question. What is it, the Christian ideal, the spiritual habits, the spiritual disciplines, what are the things that you're refusing to do, that you are willfully ignorant, that you know it's not biblical, but you refuse to do it. The other things. Because you don't want to upset the apple cart. Because you don't want to change the way that you've always done it. What are those things? Are you refusing to confront a friend who's living a wayward life or who's doing something that's going to hurt? Are you, can, are you refusing to speak to a friend in love to try to help them, to try to correct them because you don't want to make it feel awkward? It'd be awkward if I did that. Are you refusing to live by standards that the Bible teaches, like saving yourself sexually for marriage, only speaking truth, not participating in gossip? 
Are you refusing to do those things because everybody else is? I mean, that would be, that would be crazy if I lived that way. That would be insane. And then for us, I just want to tell you, there's no other text that more squarely right between the eyes punches at the idea of the second family. This is exactly what Jesus said. He said, I have a biological family whom I love, but this, this is my, this is my second family united around the same mission and the same purpose. It wasn't a social club. It wasn't the insiders and the outsiders. It wasn't the ones who have been here a long time and they know how these things go. In fact, none of them were in that room. They were all on the outside. Everybody on the inside of the room, they were sinners and broken, former prostitutes and tax collectors and fishermen outsiders that are now insiders because they do and believe the will of God. That's the second family. What a beautiful picture that we would unite around that same thing. C.S. Lewis goes on in that quote that I read to you at the beginning to write this. You can shut him up for a fool and you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he is neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely that it might seem, I have to accept the view that he was and he is God. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.